Hello and welcome to Man on the Clapham Omnibus Sport Review. Today I'm going to do a podcast entitled Jose and the Culture Wars. Now, a few weeks ago, when I was starting a, another podcast, I was really talking about Jose and Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. And at that precise moment, Man United have been knocked out of the Champions League quite embarrassingly. You know, they'd done all the hard work. You know, they'd beaten PSG, they'd absolutely smashed RB Leipzig. It was all set up. They'd really done the hard bit as long as they beat Istanbul. Basaka here, they were pretty much home and dry. But they failed. And they had dropped out. They'd had some you know, sh- some poor results. They'd been you know, beaten early in the season by Spurs. Their home form was a bit iffy. There was question marks over Pogba. And at that time, you know, Jose had taken Spurs top. And it really was a sense of, you know, trains in the night, that they were just passing by, that Ole at some point before Christmas, if the form didn't pick up, would be sacked, and that Tottenham, you know, they may even compete for the title. It was enough of a screwy year with COVID, with the short pre-season, with the, you know, the leftover tiredness and the injuries, Paul, you know, that there would be some, that it wouldn't be quite as high-end in the sense that you wouldn't have to get you know 95 100 points to win the league that there was some weaknesses with man city you know there's some weaknesses with liverpool there was room for someone to you know jump jump out of the chasing pack and compete for the title now obviously you know a few months later it's completely different again it's a little bit like frank lampard and steven gerrard you know, when Frank Lampard started this season having finished fourth for Chelsea, you know, there's all this money putting in, the chance that they were going to compete for the title, and you know, Steven Gerrard with the situation, Rangers possibly, if they hadn't got off to a good start, he'd be fired. You know, football can change so rapidly. But with Jose, the, the recent downturn in form, it, it's really shown a schism with... Spurs fans, and I think it shows you know an issue with football that is all of this change that has happened, and all of the you know instability that you've seen you know really on both sides of the Atlantic with the you know dysfunction of the Trump administration. You had the Brexit. You've had you've had COVID. Is that there really has been a lot of polarization, and that has really started to leak into football. So. What's the key question, really? Is, is why is Jose so polarising? Well, you, you have the arrogance. You, you have the... You know, the, the fact, it's his insistence. You know, he, he is a brand as well as a manager. You know, it's international marketing. You, you can't escape him. You know, even when he wasn't managing, you, you'd have him in the, you know, the Sky Sports as a pundit. Even when he wasn't in the country, when he was managing Real Madrid or managing Inter Milan... You know, there was such a fascination. And I think, at, you know, from the British media, you, it was almost as if Jose was one of our own. And I think it's the fascination that British people have to that attitude. And I think the best example of that is when you take Cristiano Ronaldo and Wayne Rooney when they were teammates. So there's a, the famous meme where you have sort of Cristiano Ronaldo on a, you know, a luxury yacht in the Mediterranean and he is absolutely ripped. You know, he is muscle bound. You know, there is not a chest hair to be seen. You know, he looks just like a Greek god. 
And then you have the forest of Wayne Rooney on his holidays and he's wearing kind of these baggy swimming shorts. He's topless. He's white, pasty. He doesn't look like he's in the most fantastic of shape. And really, it was the... It was almost like the ultimate difference between a sort of suave European and a British bulldog. And that's why I think a lot of people in this country can never really warm to Cristiano. Why a lot of people were far more team messy. And I think it was that he represented a kind of confidence and a vanity that is really an anathema to English people. In other words, you know, I, I don't think most English men could sit there and spend so much time on their skincare regimen, wouldn't have, you know, not having a hair out of place, you know, having their chest hair whacked, you know, being arrogant enough to walk around, you know, with your shirt half open showing off your chest, you know, the fact that he was very public about, you know, how he felt about his mother, you know, and at the time when he was playing, he got a lot of abuse for being a mummy's boy, you know, the idea that he lived with his mum, that he, you know, put all of this kind of very public affection, you know, buying her things and all the rest of it, whereby the sort of the English person doesn't really, you know, we love our mums just as much as Cristiano, but we wouldn't feel comfortable sharing it in such an open way. And almost putting yourself forward for the sort of piss take that, that people gave him. But at the same time, from that piss take is an element of jealousy. The fact that he is so tall, that he was so fantastically gifted. You know, that he did look like a movie star. Whereby Wayne Rooney, you know, I think the classic example is when he first started playing for England, you know, at youth level. You know, he gave this poem about how it meant to him. And it's very, you know, wonderful. And yet, he's most famous really in terms of, you know, talking about England was when he was walking off the field after in 2010 World Cup, after drawing nil-nil with... Algeria, terrible performance, classic Fabio Capello England performance when the pressure was on, and he basically had a go at the the fans because they were booing him. It's like, in other words, he he wasn't able to articulate that it meant the world to him to play for England, and he was able to when he was a kid, poem in front of the his teammates and their families. But when it came down to it, when put under pressure, it was you know really arsy sort of comment to make, and I think. When you then take it back to sort of Mourinho, it's the sense that what George Orwell said, that only the British would use the term being too clever by half as an insult. You know, it's the fact that, you know, there's this, even in the media, even in our sort of day-to-day culture, the idea that we, you know, we praise people, but we're always just waiting for the first, you know, sign of weakness so that we can tear them down. The, the sort of tabloid culture. And the thing is, there's this fascination with the the psychology of the arrogance and the role that he's played in his undoubted success. There's a um, baseball cartoon strip about the Red Sox. You know, kind of, it's these, the idea is it's set in this office and it's all these Red Sox fans and they just talk about the game, the day, the game from the day before. And there was a t-shirt that came that you were able to buy for it that said, it's only arrogance if you're wrong. And that was, that's the sort of original Jose. You know, yes, he could call himself the special one, but, well, he was right. He had won the European Cup with Porto. He was going to be the first, you know, Chelsea manager to win the Premier League. And the thing is, is that the difference is, is that we have had our own arrogance. Our arrogance. Uh, you know, but it's like, 
Sam Allardyce when he said, you know, if I was called Aladisi, I'd be managing Real Madrid. And yet, the first time he got a really big club when he was managing Newcastle, it fell apart within a few weeks. Even back in the day, you sort of have Malcolm Allenson. And yet, although for Malcolm Allenson, there was the visual trappings, the lifestyle, the, you know, he, you know, it was the... You know, the the champagne lifestyle, the fast cars, the you know fancy clothes, but for all of the media talk, there was no real end product. He wasn't you know England's greatest ever manager. You know we always you know when England struggled, there's always a sense of maybe if we got a foreign person who would be more subtle, more sophisticated, more tactically aware, that would help us be able to compete in you know summer tournaments. As much as people say they don't like Jose, why would Sky have taken him on as a pundit if he wasn't box office to the British audience? If they weren't fascinated to hear what Jose had to say? I mean, I think it's it's fascinating if you sort of compare and contrast him to sort of Brian Clough, who's probably the closest thing we had to kind of a Jose-esque arrogance. And yet, you know, what was his nickname? Old Big Head. You know, it's not the most sophisticated nickname, is it? You know, the point is his whole aura was almost around the idea of the, the working class boy made good. You know, I would have cut, I could have been a world class player but for my injury that, you know, took away my career far too early. And now as a manager, I'm just going to have all of this success. You know, I am going to stick it to the elites. Exactly, you know, the chairman, the board. You know, I will do it my way. And yet, it's also even on a wider, sort of more sociological level, it was you know, the North against the South. The idea that he would take some you know, unfashionable team, firstly Derby, and then you know, Nottingham Forest, and that he would beat the big boys, you know, your Manchester United, your Liverpools, you know, the London clubs, your Spurs, Arsenal, Chelsea, and all the rest. He would take on all comers. You know, when, he, when he manages, but, you know, when he fails at Leeds, and then fails at Brighton, you know, Brighton's a Southern club, and his just stick doesn't quite work. You know, at Leeds, they were already a successful outfit, and they didn't, you know, take his stick. And it was almost the sense that it de- it was dependent on him having a base, that he was a man of the people. You know, he was very much a believer in sort of socialist principles. He gave money to socialist sort of causes. You know, there was an underlying principle. There was a sense that he loved good football. And, you know, he was worshipped by, you know, firstly the Derby crowd, then the Nottingham Forest crowd. You know, there's, I, I probably mentioned this before, the famous study they did at, I think, the Rolls-Royce factory in Derby. And that productivity at the factory on a Monday would be something, you know, 30% better if Derby had won at home and it was something like 60% worse if they had lost. You know, he really, you know, both the people of Nottingham and the people of Derby, you know, they, they have arguments over, you know, who Clough really loved the most. It's that kind of principle behind it whereby Jose's you know almost entirely different you know he's university educated you know foreign is the obvious one you know he wasn't much of a football player you know his rise was swift if you sort of compare him to the you know, British the traditional British successful managers they, they were always there was so much intensity around it you know it was all about devotion loyalty they were the men these men were hard men 
They had been shaped by war, you know, the army. You know, a lot of them had even done national service or served in the army. You know, they'd had tough working class upbringings. You know, they were shaped, you know, some of them had you know, fought in the war, some of them had been shaped by the war. And there was always a sense that, you know, when you look at their quotes, they always reflect that intensity. You know, this Bill Shankly one, that football isn't a matter of life and death, it's far more important than that. There's, a, you know, a lot of, you know, when you look at Shankly, some, you know, to Bill, Bill Nicholson to a lesser extent, there's always a sense that they are communing with their fans. You know, the fact that these managers always sort of seem to build their clubs from the bottom up. You know, the same thing happened with Clough at Derby. You know, it took them from bottom end of Division 2 to champ, you know, to champions of England. Same thing with sort of Don Revy, same thing with Bill Shankly. And there was this, this concept that there had to be some foundation, some, you know, some socialist morals, that you were doing this for the people, there was some values behind it. You know, the exact opposite to, you know, Thatcherism's idea that there was no such thing as community. You know, you were intrinsically local, you were linked to the man on the street. You know, there was an element of meritocracy. The idea is, is that if, you know, there but for the grace of God, you know, if I hadn't been a fantastic football player, I would have been down the mines or in the factory with you. And so, you know, and the fact that even when you became a footballer, you had to go through an apprenticeship. There was difficulties. There was, you know, it was, you know, it was a struggle. If you didn't make it or if you got a horrible injury, there was an element of sort of luck to that. You know, they were of the people, but not above them. You know, of, you know, especially with Bill Nicholson, he lived locally. He, in other words, he he would literally walk from his house to the ground. His wife, who never went to any of the games, would be able to literally know the result just from hearing, you know, the sort of chatter or the lack of chatter from people walking past. She'd just be able to get a sense of what had happened without actually ever physically knowing what the score was. No one would shout out, oh, Spurs lost 3-0, Spurs won 2-0. She would just know. And there's always an inherent sadness to their exits. You know, with Brian Clough, you know, he was, you know, riddled with alcohol, alcoholism. And, you know, for, you know, one season too long and, you know, he takes Nottingham Forest down, relegated in 93. You know, when Jock Steen, the famous Celtic manager, sort of left, he was offered a job doing the, the pools. It's kind of like a really, sort of almost disrespectful, like, oh, you, you can do some office, like office work if you want. You know, in the end, Bill Shankly got banned from the Liverpool training ground because after he retired... He'd still keep going there and still almost as if he wanted needed to be involved. And they're like, well, you can't just keep turning up here. You've left. You know, the only way we're going to move on. And so he ended up spending the last few years of his life really almost following Everton more than Liverpool. You know, Bill Nicholson had a breakdown. It's kind of mentioned that, you know, even early 70s, you know, in Hunter Davis, fantastic, but the glory game. There's this image of him, you know, every before they'd have the, the game, the team, the whole team would have a cup of tea and Bill Nicholson would be sitting there with his cup of tea and it would be shaking just through like the nerves, the anticipation that he couldn't, you know, this cup would be just uncontrollably shaking almost to the point where he'd literally be near enough falling on the floor because that was how much it meant. And yet, you know, if you look at it, you know, if you look at Jose, 
you know, he's urbane, he's stylish, multilingual. You know, you have the famous coat that he, when he was first managing Chelsea that you know was stylish. Whereby, you know, with Brian Clough, you had the green jumper, which is you know, as much as it was a sense that he wanted to be able to be seen by his players, and you know, people would know what the green jumper meant. It's still more modest, whereby the Armani suit isn't. You know, the fact that he, st- you know, when Jose starts, he's as a translator. You know, he, you know then he becomes, you know, at Porto under Bobby Robson, the idea that he was jimmying what Bobby Robson was saying. So Bobby Robson was talking in fairly, I wouldn't say basic terms, but in generalities. And so Jose was translating that, but then adding in his own sort of, you know, tactical bits, so that really, in a way, it was half Jose and half Bobby Robson, which is not really what a translator should be. So Jose ends up at Porto, then Barcelona. So look at what, look at where the cities where he's managed: Lisbon, a Porto. You know, he's been a coach at Barcelona, Madrid, London. The first time he was in London, it was the West End, you know, Kings Road, Milan. You know, even when he's at Spurs, that's after Spurs had had brand new stadium, brand new training ground. You know, these sort of you know, absolutely top of the range. They just got to the Champions League. You know, when he was in Manchester, it was post Alex Ferguson, who you know, such a huge conf- you know, role in Man- putting Manchester on the map in terms of back on the map in terms of football. You had Abu Dhabi there. You had Pep already there. You know, this is Manchester is an ambitious place politically and socially. You know, they've had Olympic bids. You know, the thing is, is that. In a way, Jose's had success all across Europe. You know, he's always relied on multicultural squads, big money transfers. And, you know, that effortless of being able to sort of be successful across Europe, when you really compare to Clough, like, I think Clough's most famous sort of comment almost, not quite on Europe, but on outsiderdom, was when he was the pundit for England versus Poland. It was a critical um, qualifying game for World Cup 74 and England had to get a result against Poland at Wembley to qualify. And in the run up in the build up to the game he calls the Polish goalkeeper Jan Tomaszewski a clown. It was that kind of traditional little Englander, lit, you know, traditional Englishman like you weren't goalkeeping properly, so therefore I think you're a liability. And what happens, Tomaszewski has an amazing game and England don't qualify for the World Cup after his string of you know, mm-hmm. you know fantastic saves. And so when we talk about you know, the, the culture wars, it's fascinating how Jose has become a symbol. You know, There's a sense of malleability. He, he is whatever you want him to be. And it doesn't necessarily have to actually correspond with his record. You know, we, you know, I've said that a lot of English people almost still take Jose as one of our own. And yet really, managerially speaking, was his greatest success really in England? Well, yeah, he won at Chelsea and he won the Europa League at Man United and won the, the League Cup. But... You know, three titles at Chelsea, but so Antonio Conte's won a title at Chelsea, so did Carlo Ancelotti. You know, Roberto Di Matteo was the one who won the, the Champions League. And yet, if you compare it with his success on the continent, you know, the treble with Inter, 
He did the treble with Porto. He won the Europa League the year before. He got 100 points with Real Madrid. Really, you could probably make a decent argument that his greatest success wasn't, wasn't in the British Isles. And yet, it's almost like a sort of a window into our arrogance. The idea is that, well, of course, Jose's best success happened in England. The Premier League is the, you know, the best league in the, in the world. And yet, you know, if you look at Jose's leaving club, especially you know when he got sat by Chelsea twice, when he got sat by Manchester United, there wasn't anywhere near the same set of sadness. In the end, it was almost a relief when Jose got sacked because things had become so toxic. You know, he hadn't been at any of these clubs particularly long. You know, the longest you know time he was been at an English club was his first time at Chelsea next year, just about two and a bit years. Although that has become the you know longest reign under Roman Abramovich, in comparison with the British managers, that was nothing. They would be there, you know, five, ten, fifteen years ago. You had Ferguson who was there, you know, for decade after decade. You know, even Arsene Wenger, you know, his managerial career, yeah, he had success in Japan, he had success at Monaco, but you know, he's really Arsenal. You know, there's a part of the reason why, even after he sort of left Arsenal, you know, plenty of offers, but never decided to carry on. It's almost as if Arsenal was really his club and that the idea of managing somewhere else didn't just, at no point, really appeal to him on, a, on an emotional level. I think it's interesting that, you know, the old school successful British manager would always seem to sort of be representative of the area. They would live there. They would eventually, you know, end up almost becoming you know, poster childs for that area. Whereby it's like when Mourinho was in Manchester, you know, he lived in the best hotel suite in Manchester, but he never moved out. He never moved into the area. He never became of the area. He was just there because, you know, he was managing Manchester United. His home was still in London. You know, his family never moved up. Which was always an interesting element of, you know, was he really ever going to stay there for that long? And I think in part that's almost you know, one of the reasons why even Manchester United were relatively successful when they were getting sort of 80 plus points, finishing second, you know, they'd won a couple of trophies. They were still a part of the Man United fan base that never quite took to Jose. And yet, at Spurs there is a, a, a section of fans that struggle to really, you know, I think it's multifaceted, you know, it's partly because he was manager of Chelsea, it's partly because of the, you know, the style of football, you know, it's, uh, you know his media presence, the, the arrogance. There's a lot of reasons, you know, over the years for you for people not to, you know, particularly love Jose. You know, they might not like, you know, him always you know, being such a huge sort of brand presence. And yet there's a section of Spurs fans and sort of Spurs fan media sites that are massive Jose fans. They are really, it's almost sort of, uh, almost cultish on some levels. And there's always an element of sort of rage that's sort of bubbling under. And it, I think it shows a lot of, you know, 
opens the window into you know an element of darkness that there there there, there is online. You know there is a, a whole section of football fans who are just preternaturally angry about the you know anything and everything. You know when there's a mistake, you know that player will get a huge amount of Twitter abuse. You know there's you know people jumping on you know oh I don't want that player you know at my club if he signs I'll drive him to the back to the airport. You know, it is really a bubbling cauldron of dissatisfaction. And why is that? And I think it's, an, it's really at its heart, it's change. You, you've had a change in the infrastructure of football. You know, you've had brand new grounds. You've had a change in you know, how football is covered in terms of television, print, you know, the, the rise of the internet. You know, the makeup and the composition of fans has changed. You know, the cost, you, know, you have higher ticket prices. You know, there's a change in the nature of the match day itself. You know, there's been a drop in you know, hooliganism and violence. If you sort of compare it with France, where you've had the Marseille game cancelled because their ultras stormed the training ground and basically did thousands of pounds of damage. You, know, you had a situation at Saint-Étienne when the, you know, literally you know, a couple of hundred ultras... You know, attended training, surrounded the players. You know, imagine two hundred people surrounding a group of you know twenty you know young men, and just chanting at them. You know, as much as it is a sign of support, it, there's an ominous overtones to it. It's like we can surround you. We are dissatisfied. What are you going to do about it? You don't have that so much in England. You know, even when you've had situations where there's been a rise in arrest for like you know outward racism, homophobia, you know, the classic examples of the Chelsea fans who basically got caught on Sky abusing Raheem Sterling. You know, those people being tracked down. You know, there's now a concerted effort, you know, between the players and the clubs and, you know, outside pressure groups to basically try and get, you know, make massive social media companies to you know, really crack down on all this horrendous abuse that, you know, players are getting and a lot of it is being directed, you know, on a racial basis. But the thing is, is that even with the crowd, it's more family oriented. It's more middle class. There's more tourist. It's you know less rowdy. It's less rambunctious. You know the age of a lot of season tickets. When I, what I've noticed at Spurs from when I first started being a season ticket holder, sort of fifteen twenty years ago, is that it's a lot older. And there are, frankly, there's a sullen consumerism. It is a lot of grumpy old men because they're the people that can afford, you know, £750,000 a year for this season ticket. And they've been going for X number of years. And they are tetchy. They're grouchy. You know, they don't seem to have, you know, much of a relationship with the players. They can get down on players, especially some of the youngers, really quickly. And, you know, sometimes, you know, you'll... They'll almost be talking about the good old days where when players meant something, you know, it's that kind of mindset. You know, the football crowds are no longer, you know, the bastion of the young working class. You just can't rock up to Stamford Bridge at half till on a Saturday with you know your wages in your pocket and just get into the, you know, the shed, shed end. It's not that. And really, you know, the fans, you know, as a whole, even you know, not even taking taking out match going fans, it's the makeup and formation of you know composition of fans is different. It's less pale, it's less male, there's more women, there's more you know, whole you know, more international fans. And there's been unintended consequences. So a lot of the you know 
what would have stayed in the ground, you know, abuse, you know, aggression. It, it's no longer there. You can't be that aggressive. You will be chucked out. You will be looked down on. There isn't, you know, a swirling mass of young men on a Saturday afternoon you've had a couple of beers, you know, on a massive terrace where there's a potential that, you know, the away fans might storm you at any moment. That's just gone. It would never happen again. You, you know, any if you shout something, you might get caught on CCTV. You might be shot to a shoot. You will be dragged out and you know, banned. So all of that hate is still there. All of that, it's now been rechanneled. It's now online. You know, thing. You know, there's really, you know, there's a backdrop. There's some elephants in the room. I think the backdrop, as I said, you know, you've had, you know, the psychodrama of the Trump administration and and how, you know, how that has changed. The, Things that we thought would never happen, things that we didn't, we never thought a president would say, happened. You, you then had Brexit, and you know that opened up a pan in this country, it opened up a Pandora's box. You know there was a whole rise in hate crimes and people using racist terms. It was almost as if some people thought that that vote legitimized, you know, hate thought and things that you know maybe five, ten years earlier, you might have thought, but you wouldn't have said out loud. Now people feel, you know, confident enough to express those ideas. So, how does it affect Spurs and, and really the perceptions of Jose? And I think what it comes down to is that there was a generational heartbreak when Spurs lost the Champions League final. And it was a deep, profound disappointment. And it was really, in some way, shape, and this will sound ridiculous, but it was really traumatic. Basically, there's been times in Spurs history where they've had horrendous defeats. Painful, heartbreaking defeats. You know, all football clubs have their share of heartbreaking defeats. But I think the previous generation's heartbreaking defeat was never that bad. And it was never to that extent. It was never, you know, the end of an era in 90 minutes. You know, let's say, you know, I'll give you some examples. You know, in 62, they lost to Benfica. You know, probably a couple of bad refereeing decisions in the away leg. And that prevented them from getting to the European Cup final. You know, the semi of a European Cup final. That's a disappointing, you know, to be a couple of goals short. Okay, but the previous year they'd won the League and Cup double, so that'd been the first team in that century. So sixty plus years, no one had won the League and Cup. That was you know there was two trophies. Spurs won them both. You know that year, yeah, they didn't win the European Cup. They still won the FA Cup. The year after that, they won the European Cup Winners' Cup. You know the first team ever to you know first British team ever to win a major European trophy. You know, brilliant. You know, the same thing as the disappointment of, you know, Arsenal winning the league at, you know, White Hart Lane in 71. Well, that year they won the League Cup. The year after, in 72, they won the UEFA Cup. In 73, they win the League Cup again. You know, in other words, there's always, there was always some success around it. And you have to remember, this was an era of less stratification. There was less sense of finality. you if you lost a final, you, you know, even when Spurs got relegated in the late 70s, 
you know, within a season, they were back in the first division. Within a couple of seasons after that, they won back-to-back FA Cups. First teams would go back-to-back and winning FA Cups for you know extended period of time. 84, they win the, the UEFA Cup by the mid-80s. They're competing at the top end, you know, trying to go for league titles. You know, you know they'd lost a um, League Cup final on to Liverpool. They lost a UEFA Cup final to final. But overall... You know, Spurs won far more cup finals than they'd lost. There'd been you know long periods of you know of relative success, whereby what you had with losing to Liverpool on the back of losing the league title to Leicester and to Chelsea was that the defeat and the decline of the, of that team wasn't really a sporting one. It wasn't a situation. That there was, you know, if you look at Bill Nick's team, you know they lost John White to a tragic accident where he was out golfing and he there was a storm rest under a tree and the tree got hit by lightning and he got killed, and that was part you know and that was uh, there was a couple of injuries to Dave Mackay you you had Danny Blanchflower got old and retired those tiny little things that just allowed that team from the the height their peak of the early 60s by the mid 60s they were they were still a good team but they weren't that as great whereby with Leicester you had the situation that everyone in the world wanted Leicester to win the title because it was such an amazing story whereby had it been Chelsea trying to win the title had it been Man City Man United there would have been a sense that Tottenham would have been the underdog. And it's like, oh, what a fantastic achievement. You haven't spent all of, you know, you haven't spent this huge amount of money. You've got this young coach you're playing this really, you know, fun brand of football with some young English talent. In the end, every, you know, really Spurs worthy, you know, the ugly sister of that title race. No one really wanted them to win it other than Spurs fans. And you had Chelsea winning the title. You know, when Spurs got to 86 points, you know, had that been any time in the previous sort of five, six, seven years, that would have been enough to have either won your title or put you, you know, final day of the season in with a shout. And yet that year, Conte's team puts up a fantastic you know, 25, 30 game run well into the mid-90s. And it was really you know, shades of Munich for Spurs. Is that when Spurs finally finished above Chelsea and went to the Champions League. What happens? Chelsea finished six. I've always jokingly said this to my Chelsea friends: accidentally win the Champions League on penalties, and that takes Spurs out. And so, what you had was is that it was almost that Spurs didn't quite have the money, and that the teams that were going to go past them, you know, Leicester was almost a one-off. The, you know, they dropped off. They've never. Even up until now, they've never quite competed for the the championship again. You know, they had a little bit of success in Europe, but it's, they've never been quite the same. It was really a one-off year. So if you're comparing Spurs and their spending with Man City, with Liverpool, there was just this... You knew that Spurs weren't going to be able to compete in the same way because you had the, the stadium. And that was it. It was just because there were just bigger clubs and competing with them, even with the genius of Pochettino, even with some of the great signings that you know him and Levy had made, uh, you still were short. You know, there was no happy ending. You know, the thing is, it was a vicious cycle. 
you had Spurs needed to build the new stadium to try and compete with the four and five star clubs, your PSGs, your Bayern Munich, your Juventuses, your Reals, your Barcelonas. But in the short term, it prevented Pochettino from refreshing the first team. You know, to prevent the staleness and the atrophy. It was, you know, I've, I've compared, you know, in the medium to long term, the new stadium was going to allow Spurs to compete on a better level. You couldn't have stayed at White Hot Lane and meaningfully competed because every single game, all of the clubs would be making two, three million pounds more. You wouldn't be able to get as many fans in. It's, you know, and Spurs' run to the Champions League final almost had that little bit like Arsenal's run to the Champions League final in 2006. It was the last hurrah of a dying team. So there was no happy ending. You know, had Potch won that game and walked out, you've done everything you possibly could have done in five years. From when you took over the rabble that Tim Sherwood was, was coach of, you've now taken them to you know, the Champions League, to the absolute pinnacle of European football. But the thing is, is that you weren't, even after you lost, it wasn't a situation where you believed that Spurs could come back stronger. In the same way that Klopp did when Liverpool lost to, you know, in that heartbreaking situation with you know, the head injury to the goalkeeper, the goalkeeper's mistake, the gap belt overhead kick. They came back stronger and then won it and then won the league. And really, why did they do that? It's because they spent a bomb on Virgil van Dijk and they spent a bomb on Allison. The final missing pieces, but that was the money that Spurs didn't have. And by the time they sort of spent it on Tungi and Dombele, Gio Lo Celso, it was too late for Pochettino. It, you know, much in the same way Klopp at Dortmund. They had just run out of energy. You know, it, they just needed to change. And as heartbreaking as that was, and that was why it was so difficult for some Spurs fans to really to deal with. You know, for them, it was a the, the, the pain of this defeat that has never really been quite lanced. They've never quite been able to, to heal. So as a result, it almost for them, it was a retreat to dogma. So in other words, you know, the failure of Madrid in 2019 at the Wanda Metropolitano, it meant that Pochismo, the idea of Pochettino, had failed in totality, which is just fundamentally not accurate. If you take a team with a, you know, let's say, the sixth, seventh, eighth biggest wage bill in the Premier League, and you take them to second, and you finish above Pep, you finish above Arsenal, you finish above Manchester United, you finish above Liverpool. That is an achievement in any season. Any season where you get 86 points, where you don't lose at home in the league, you only draw two games at home in the league, that's a fantastic year. Where you score some of the most amount of goals, you can see some of the fewest, that's a successful year. But the idea was is that in their mind, the lack of trophies was a, was a moral judgment on the whole project i.e. because you hadn't won, because there was no trophies, there was no denouement, that was it. That's The project was a complete failure. It, it's a massive overreaction. You know, and the idea is, therefore, because Poch didn't win any trophies, he was not a successful manager. He's not a winner, in the sense that a Jose is, or an Alex Ferguson. And so they would sort of jump on his idea that you know, his apparent disdain for the domestic cups, that it was basically because poor decision-making on his part, when really it was a strategic decision. You know, it, the idea that somehow that Spurs could win the League Cup or the FA Cup and that that would be a springboard on to greatness, it's a romantic idea and it may have 
been the case in the 60s, the 50s, the 70s, 80s, even maybe the early 90s, but really in the modern era with stratification, the big teams win it. Occasionally you get a Wigan, occasionally you get a Portsmouth, but for all the good that that's done, both of those teams, generally you win the League Cup on the way down. It's the, oh, you've been in the Premiership a few years, you're established, you have a good cup run, it's your lucky day. And then a few years later, you're back in League One or the Championship, and it's just a long-forgotten memory. It's just something that, you know, it was a great day for the fans, but it didn't lead to anything else. It didn't make you any more secure in the Premier League. You know, Leicester didn't need to win the FA Cup to win the league and then get to the Champions League quarterfinals. You know, Tottenham didn't need to win the League Cup against Liverpool, uh, against Chelsea when Mourinho won the double in his second go-round at Chelsea to then finish second in the Premier League, to have got to the Champions League final. You know, it wasn't a major character flaw. You know, the point is he got to two FA Cup semi-finals, a League Cup final, and another League Cup semi-final, which they lost on penalties. You know, in five years, that seems to me to suggest that they had a decent record in a cup. Yes, they lost a couple of the big games. And that is, it's a frustration, and you could possibly hold that against him. But then, my argument would be this, is that in... All three years that they lost to Chelsea in the FA Cup semi-final, the League Cup semi-final, and the League Cup final under Pochettino, all three years Chelsea either won the league or a European trophy. You know the last, you know the other semi-final they lost to was to Manchester United, whereby, if you compare that to Mourinho's apparent cup success this year, you'd say well he's beaten Chelsea on penalties in the League Cup, but it was one all after 90 minutes, so there's no extra time. Start of the season, Chelsea were blooding some of their new players. It wasn't a particularly... You know, it was behind closed doors. I'd say Chelsea shaded the game, went 1-0 up, didn't get the second goal to finish it off. Spurs got an equaliser, meandered to penalties, and Mason Mount hit the post. And so that is successful, and then if you can... You know, Spurs have got a buy into the first round of the League Cup because they were in Europe. All the big clubs get that buy. The next round, you know, they beat Chelsea. The round after that, Leighton Orient had plague, you know, COVID, so they got a buy. And then they've beaten Stoke and Brentford. You know, good, solid championship teams, but that's the difference. If you, you know, what is the difference between that penalty shootout win and Pochettino in the semi final of the League Cup? losing at Stamford Bridge on a penalty shootout. In other words, it's not that Jose is such a brilliant manager, Spurs won that penalty shootout, and it wasn't that Pochettino was such a terrible big game manager that Spurs lost that penalty shootout. It could go either way. You know, Spurs are in the fifth round and they're playing Everton next week. They've beaten Marine and bottom of the Division 1 Wickham. In the, league, in the Europa League, they've beaten Antwerp, Ludogorets. Lask, you know, they're not amazing teams. They have, you know, Jose has done what any manager would be expected to do. He's, you know, you could argue he's maybe ridden his luck against Chelsea. Rest of the time, he's beaten teams that Spurs should be beating and should be beating quite easily. And this is the whole point, really, that this school of thought has really proclaimed Jose as the Messiah. And I suppose that principle is based on his, it's entirely his CV. It's the idea that 
if we get Mourinho, we are guaranteed a trophy. That's what all fans of clubs other than Spurs say to me. It's, oh, you got Mourinho, you'll win something. And it's, you know, basically, they don't ever say the league, they don't say Europe or the Champions League. Really, they say, well, you'll probably win like a League Cup or an FA Cup. Maybe the Europa League. Now, the Europa League is, in my mind, much more beneficial than winning the League Cup or the FA Cup. Europa League, that's European trophy, brilliant. That gets you into the Champions League next year. The FA Cup and the League Cup, yeah, I'd love it if we absolutely smash you know, Pep at Wembley on the 25th of April, but all that gets you is, yep, yeah, you've won or something, great, and a place in the Europa League. It's That's it. It's something, it's a great day out, and I love when we won in 99, I was there, I loved it when we won in 2007, but in neither of those cases was that a springboard onto something else. And I think what these fans want, the Jose, is, is for this to be a balm, a quick one, that all that pain and disappointment, that all that five years of progress onto Pochino became, you know, collapsed into nothing, into a set of, you know, poor performances. You know, the end of Pochino was painful, losing 7-2 to Bayern. But it's really just built on this hope. It's kind of overly... It's overly simplistic. It's like, we get Jose, we win. But it's like, well, what if Jose's in decline? What if his style of play, his managerial ethos, you know, is that going to be successful for the next two, three, four years? Is it, you know, is it a valuable enough decision to put, you know, £48 million worth of wages into him? He's on £12 a year. It's a huge amount of money, especially in COVID, if it fails, if it becomes toxic, which it has done at several of his other clubs. Does his style of play, is it likely to match up with your other top six teams, your Liverpool under Klopp, your Guardiola under Man City? And I think, you know, it's an element of fame. You, You have the Amazon documentary. The fact that there was a lot more interest taken in Spurs because of Mourinho. But it's almost as if he's like this kind of sort of magical miasma that would just... Sort of by sheer presence alone, import a winning mentality. And yet, at the moment, if you look at the way how you know things have collapsed in the last, you know, they've lost three games in a row in the Premier League for the first time in seven, eight years. I there's no guarantee, and yet these the, the Joseas they display this sort of absolute profound anger at the modern player the, the idea that they're sort of rich they're cosseted they're flash they're out of touch you know they, they shouldn't be you know, hugely worried about their personal safety and COVID because they're, they're because of covid because of their they're young and it's almost as if the idea that you know Mourinho turning up would almost be a toxic shock that it would be sort of almost a sufficient sort of punishment for the fact that they had dropped off the team as a whole after losing the Champions League that you know the negativity and that criticism would, would bring improvement the idea that you know it's almost Roy Keenism the idea that actually if you go into the you know dressing room and give them a bollocking that that would be you know what would suddenly snap everyone out of it and get them performing again you know yeah, the idea of criticizing Deli Alley. You know, because in some respect it's he's a convenient scapegoat. You know, he, some players, you know, they just look like they're working very hard. You know, the 
grafters, they're you know, good, honest pros. And there are other people like Deli Ali who, yeah, I'm sure if you look at the running numbers, but you know, because of his style of play, at times it looks casual. Because the thing is, he's not the quickest runner in the world. You know, he's not got the most fantastic, you know, passing technique. What he is is an instinctual player. He makes things happen. And when it pulls off, like the you know, Crystal Palace goal a few years ago when he first sort of broke through, when he you know, flicked it over the head, turned around and spanked it in you know, on the volley, if that doesn't work out, you look stupid. You'll be shouted at. Well, look, why don't you pass it to Ericsson? Why don't you get it out wide? Why are you going for this spectacular goal? You know, it is, you know, the fans love it when it works, but they are absolutely hammered, Delhi, when it goes wrong. Or when, you know, the flicks don't work. But it was almost as if by hiring Mourinho, it was it was almost as if it was permission for the fans to lash out. It's like all that anger and disappointment at the fact that they, you know, you'd had this sort of period of success that just hadn't quite peaked. You know, it's like the Hunter S. Thompson um, wave speech in um, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, the book. And he's talking about the, the end of the 60s. That, you know, it was this high wave that people just thought their energy, young people thought their energy would just overwhelm and that they'd sort out all of these you know, societal problems and it'd be a brand new age, you know, flower power, all the rest of it. And yet by the end of the 60s, the wave crashed and then suddenly you know, it, it, retre you know, it retreated. You didn't have that. And that's what I think has happened to Spurs fans. It really is the sense of that hope that under Pochettino. And it's almost a little bit like the differences between sort of Obama and the idea of you know, change we can believe in, that this would change everything once you've had a, you know, a African-American president. And then there was almost in a way, while he served his two terms, a backlash that actually you know, he was just a politician, a relatively good politician, you know, he has, you know, he did, had achievements, you know, there were things he did that were good, things that he did that I wouldn't argue weren't great, but relatively speaking, he wasn't a, you know, consensus terrible president. You might not put him on Mount Rushmore, but, and then you then had Trump, which was the exact opposite, you know, completely different to Obama in terms of politics, in terms of outlook on the world. Obama was sort of talking about, you know, a world that you can be you know, almost looking forward, whereby, you know, in Trump's inauguration speech, he was talking about American carnage. Uh, it brings to mind um, the one, the situation with the woman who was shot and killed in the Capitol building, uh, Ashley Bobbitt, Babbitt even. And there was a, a situation where, it was maybe a couple of weeks after everything had happened, and it was in the Bill Maher show, and he was saying how she was a you know, small businesswoman, and one of the problems that she had is, is that she couldn't get a business loan, so she had to go to almost like a payday lender, and the APR of the loan was something like sort of 1100%. Which is just, you know, it's an outrageous. And the thing is that she had voted for Obama. And yet, a few years later, here she was. You know, and this was someone who was a Air Force veteran who was basically trying to break into the Senate. Who had, you know, 
uh, social media was to, you know, absolute rage. And the point is, is that, you know, if you let take a, you know, Liz, Senator Elizabeth Warren, someone who'd wanted to, you know, stop, you know, payday, that kind of loan, you know, to have more consumer protection. And, and basically, Ma was saying that really, Ashley Babbitt was, you know, angry at the wrong people. And I think that's how I feel really with a lot of the, you know, Hoseis. You know, if you are angry at Poch, you're not angry at the right person. You know, if you're wanting to castigate him, call him a, a failure, say that he's not a winner, that's that's ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, Levy you know, is culpable in some ways for, you know, putting in a limited investment, but we were aware of that. Poch was aware of the limitations of how much money was going to be available with regards to the new stadium. There was going to be two or three tough years. And, you know, you could argue that getting Spurs in that intervening time period to a Champions League final and to still finish in the top four was an incredible achievement with a squad that was, you know, in parts ageing and that was really in desperate need of reinforcement. And that's the point, is that if you take an actual look at you know, what do Hoseus consider a success, and it's very much this, it's trophies, it's winning, it's success, it's success, it's success, nothing else matters. Football in that point is a zero-sum game. And the thing is, I'm not saying that Pochettino was infallible, he did make mistakes, but, you know, his success... And, you know, outweighs really any bad points. I don't think there was anybody else that could have done a better job in that time period and with those kind of resources. You know, it's, you're being angry at Levy is one thing. I can understand where a lot of that rage comes from. But he, you are still competing against Man City, who are funded by a state. You have... A Russian billionaire who funds Chelsea. You have, you know, huge. You know, you have Liverpool who are a bigger club. You have Manchester United who are a bigger club. If you're trying to compete at the top end of Europe, you're competing with Juventus who have huge support in Italy and around the world. You have Real Madrid, Barca, two of the biggest clubs in the world. You know, one of the the elements of Poch's success and ideology, because it was so positive, it it covered up that Spurs actually in those five years are now the ninth biggest football club in the world. You know, the point is, is that as angry as you want to be about, you know, let's say, you know, and I think a lot of these fans are really angry about stratification. The point is, is that Spurs, in comparison with anyone outside of the top six, are just as much part of the problem. They are not necessarily part of the solution. Spurs are bigger than Everton, West Ham, and are able to, you know, throw their weight about in that regards. You know, the point is, is that when Jose is just talk about winning, and trophies, and that's the only metric that matters. Yeah, on some level, there is an accuracy to it, but okay, look at the current era where football is in the world. It's it's a, it's the Elizabeth Bennett comment to you know Mr. Darcy in Pride and Prejudice when you know Miss Darcy outlines what he thinks is an accomplished woman who can do do this, do that, all these you know myriad of things, and yet she basically says to him, well. I'm surprised you know of any woman who is accomplished, you know, because of his, you know, 
arrogant and haughty attitude. And I want to say the same thing to the, the Joseis to a certain extent. Well, who is a list of, what is the list of successful clubs in the last few years? It's Bayern, PSG, Real, Barca, Juve, Liverpool, Man City. You know, you'd maybe put Chelsea, you'd maybe put Atletico Madrid in there. I mean, Atletico would be on the absolute outer edges of it. And you look at them, they're all four or five star football clubs. They're massive football clubs. You know, Bayern have had a new stadium. Atletico Madrid have had a new stadium. You know, if you look at Juventus have a new stadium. And Real, Barca, Liverpool, Man City, they have all redeveloped their stadiums. Substantial renovations. And on that list, PSG and Chelsea, they're looking to redevelop their stadiums. You know, as much as it is that, you know, Spurs in the last 20 odd, you know, 20 plus years have won two League Cups, by that metric, no, they're not a overtly successful football club in terms of trophies. But very few teams are now with stratification. Everton haven't won something since 1995. West Ham haven't won anything since 80 and the FA Cup. Uh, Newcastle haven't won anything since 1969. Haven't won anything since decimalisation. You were talking about shillings, not pounds and pence, when Newcastle last won something. You know, and these are not small pony clubs. These are big, successful English staples of the English First Division, and they haven't won anything. Aston Villa haven't won anything since the League Cup in, I think it was ninety. It's either ninety six or ninety seven. Yeah, that. That's a huge amount of clubs. You know, Arsenal went through 10, 12 years where they didn't win anything under Wenger. And even then, all they won was some FA Cups, which didn't lead on to the, the next level, as the you know, people who focus on the Joseist seem to keep, keep proclaiming. I don't see football as a zero-sum game, where it, it doesn't matter how you play, it's just whether you win. You know, it seems to suggest there's no room for aesthetic joy or ideology or principles. That all clubs should basically just be winning factories. It just sounds a little soulless to me. I think Spurs have made astonishing progress in the last 20 years. From being mid-table, from not qualifying for Europe for year after year, being more closer to... You know, being relegated. You know, they'd never finish in the bottom six of the Premier League, but they'd never finish in the top six of the Premier League. And now, you know, we take for granted that we're in the Europa League or the Champions League. And that not only that, we're in the latter stages. We qualify at the group stages more often than not. And the fact that it's been broadly sustainable. You know, you haven't had to have huge investment from a oligarch you haven't had to undergo sports washing you know it's kept the ethos of the club alive you know most of the time the successful Spurs managers have played good football you look at Martin Yole you look at Harry Redknapp you know they've broadly followed the traditions of what the idea of there being a Spurs way now the point is yeah you, you can't put it into a written statement it's not something you can maybe put into a book or into a manual. But it is, you know it when you see it. And it is something that is worth it emotionally investing in. You know, that's why Martin Yo is still beloved at the club. It's why 
you, know, you have to respect Harry Redknapp. You may not like some of the things that Harry Redknapp did in his private life or how he was you know, dealing with his tax affairs. But you can sit there and say when he was manager at Spurs, they played good football and they were, you know, he took the club, you know, to use Folsom Prison Blues. He took, you know, the Spurs train a little bit further down the line. And yet, my question mark really is on the last few weeks of Jose and really his tenure at the club. I'm not 100% sure that Jose really does respect the club. You know, one of his statements was this week when someone said, a journalist asked him about, you know, having lost, you know, a few games in a row, had a poor run of form. And it was really, the question was, it was how many trophies has Spurs won? It's like, okay, but I, I don't see the point of that. At some point, the Spurs job was, was attractive enough for you to take it on. And there was um, rudeness to um, a female journalist who asked, you know, why Bale hadn't played against Chelsea. And effectively, he said, that's a good question. You don't deserve a response. And when you look at the sort of Eva Carniero incident, when, you know, when he was manager of Chelsea second time around, and it's just rude. It's just not actually necessary. You know, if you consider all the crap that, women have had to go through in the sports industry because of, you know, powerful, rich men, I, I really, it really irritated me intensely. You know, criticising the youth system, saying, well, everyone who's, you know, sort of, I think between, almost suggesting anyone between 19 and 20, I don't think it's very good. Oh, but the, the kids who are sort of 16, the next level below, they're the future. And it's like, well, that's a youth team that has produced Jaffa Tanganga, who last season played for, you know, England under-21s, who did perfectly well against Liverpool. You know, he Oliver Skip, who's you know, pulling up trees, playing for top-of-the-table Norwich, who was playing last season. You know, you use Kyle Walker-Peters to swap for Hoiberg. And right now, if you look at, you know, Kyle Walker-Peters' replacement as, you know, backup right-back, who's having a better season, him or Doherty? I'd say Walker-Peters. You know, it's a youth system that's provided Harry Winks, you know, Harry Kane. And the point is, look at the squad that he has. You know, he doesn't actually need to rely on the youth system. There's enough depth in that squad. You know, the thing that annoys me about some of the Josias is at the start of the season we're saying, this is the best squad, Spurs squad in a generation. And now that this team isn't doing particularly well and some of the performances have been, frankly, witless, you're now, they're talking, oh, well, it's all the players' fault. You know, the point is it never ever seems to be Jose's fault. And the point is, is that he was aware of the constraints when he took this club over. It wasn't going to be the club where if you put centre-halves are underperforming, you could just go out and buy a £50 million centre-half and that will solve the problem. This isn't Man City. You know, as I said when you know, he took this job on, when I did a podcast about it, was really, it was entirely dependent on whether he'd learned anything, whether he was going to use this as a chance to really... Not change his career, but as a way to to write a second chapter, because this wasn't going to be like the Real Madrid job, 
the Chelsea job, the United job. It's a different type of job. We're a big club, yeah, we're ninth in the world, but there is a massive gap between just scraping the top ten and being in the top five. And it was going, he was going to have to take on some of the skills that he'd really had used at Porto. I mean, this was almost as if, you know, was Jose going to go back to original Jose? Was this going to be, like, a fantastic last great challenge? And I don't see it. I just see him almost setting up, look, I've taken you to a final, I could win you something. I've had my success, I've delivered you a trophy, first trophy for 13 years. Actually, I didn't have the backing I needed, the players underperformed, and that's why things have gone wrong. I don't see him sitting there in a way really building up the club in the sense of, you know, with the youth system. He's given, to his credit, he's given some of our youth team players game time. But like last season with Troy Parrott, where, you know, he was saying, well, he, everyone keeps banging on about how good he is, but actually I don't. he's not at this level. It, it just seems to be a sort of an attitude where basically all it is is that Jose has his players that he thinks are at his level and everybody else. And at the moment, the people who are at the Jose level, the Jose mark of achievement is Son, Kane, Ndombele, Hoiberg, Regulon, maybe Hugo Lloris, and everybody else is working towards Jose. And that's why you've ended up with you know, deficiency ball, as I did in a previous podcast, where it's almost as if the only people that can succeed are the ones who have the most talent. So that's Kane, Son, all the rest of the attackers, although they have track records and they have skills, and I've seen them play well for Spurs, and they've been part of teams that got to the Champions League final, finished second, finished third, finished fourth, aren't particularly performing. And it's it. The only people that seem to are the ones whose talent is beyond dispute. You know, Regulon's talent as a fullback, one of the best fullbacks in Spain. You know, part of the national team. Hoiberg, who is, you know, key part of the Danish team that's doing well. You have Kane, who, you know, generational talent, so is Son. You know, the best player in, you know, Asia wins that, has won that trophy. And it's just the way how his tactics are working at the moment, it's putting too much pressure on the defence. You know, they're you know having to defend 60, 70 plus minutes almost on a weekly basis regardless of what team you're playing against. And so you're putting all this pressure on the defence that having to do last-ditch defending. Against Chelsea, they only had one shot on target, which was, you know, the penalty. But... There were six or seven last ditch blocks. You know, you they were working off the edge of their own penalty area most of the time. So not only has it you put all this problem on a defence that isn't the most gifted defence in the world, you're limiting your attacking verve. You're you know, no one is putting up, you know, particularly great seasons other than Kane and Son. And you're dangerously dependent on Kane as a nine and as a ten. So and when he's got injured, the whole club is basically, you know, fallen apart. The squad players haven't been able to get a foothold. And they're put in no-win positions. If you look at Vinicius, his Premier League outings, he'd got nine minutes against West Brom when we were nil-nil and put some pressure on their back four, their centre-halves, and Kane got a last-minute winner. Other than that, I think he had a couple minutes where he was bought on, I think when the game had already been won and Harry just 
had a couple of minutes rest. And he had played a little bit in the Europa League, but a couple of times he'd been taken off at half-time. He'd never really been given sort of whole chunks of games. And yet, then suddenly when he, he's needed, when Harry Kane goes down injured, which is you know foreseeable, he doesn't start against Brighton. He gets given 45 minutes. And it's like, well, what do you expect? This is someone who's come from the Portuguese league. You know, he is a talented striker. He's shown that in Portugal. He scored in the Champions League. But if you look at his background, he wasn't a high-level Brazilian prospect. He is someone who has had raw talent, but there are you know parts of his game that aren't polished, as it were. But if you are in a situation where you're giving him virtually no playing time, and even within that minute, you know, small playing time, he'd still scored three goals in the Europa League. He scored the hat trick against Marine. He'd had a couple of assists, and yet in the Premier League, he'd had no experience until forty-five minutes at Brighton, and then. He was given, you know, a game against Chelsea where Spurs had virtually none of the ball. So, well, how was he supposed to suddenly come up with success? He had one chance, it was a cross in the last minute, and he nearly got a goal. What more could he have done within that limited playing time? You could say a little bit, you know, in the same way for Bale. There's been moments, you know, the thing is he's scored about three or four goals, a couple of assists. I think there's a possibility that when this all comes out that his you know the injuries that he's had he might not be able to play at a top level premier league level he might have to play out in china or in the mls where it's not as demanding and he can show his skill he showed that against wickham but then if you look at his playing time it's two weeks he might not play at all then he gets given 10 minutes when spurs are struggling or he gets 60 minutes in the europa league game or he gets pulled off at half time because spurs aren't doing well and it's like well what do you expect you're not going to build up any kind of form especially if you haven't played for 18 months and you have injuries you've had muscle injuries and you're maybe not 100% confident in your body well, it's not really a massive surprise then that his form has been a bit patchy but then this is what Jose will then come out and say it's well I can't give you playing time I can't guarantee this you have to show me you again it's working towards Jose and I think it's like well if you reverse engineer a a Jose team at the moment really you you would appear to need 11 world class in their prime players it seems the only sort of defense that would really sort of work with some of his style of play would seemingly be the Chelsea defence from 2005 you know you'd need a John Terry in his prime a Petr Cech in his prime you know Ricardo Carvalho in his prime you would need an Ashley Cole in his prime you would you know all of those sort of players and you think well Spurs don't have that money they have some talented players but you have to work with the talents you've got you have talent in you know, Dyer, out of around, you know, you sign Rodon. The thing is, he's an eleven million pound signing from Swansea. This is, you know, there was a whole bunch of Jose sort of supporters who were having a go at him for making a couple of mistakes against Chelsea, and these were mistakes that didn't actually cause anything. It ended nil nil. So, well, you've given a twenty one year old ninety minutes in the Premier League on his debut away at Chelsea. You know. When what point has are we so desperate for instant success that you can't realize that you're, this player's going to need a bit of time? You know, he's an investment for the future. He has talent. He's done well for Wales. There is something to work with, 
and yet you don't get that feeling with Jose that it's doing that. Either it's, oh, well, he's made some mistakes and then he gets dropped. And you just get this sense that he's going to keep coming out and saying, well, he just needs more players like he did at United. And I just feel... If you if you need 11 world-class players for Jose to be a successful manager, well, what's the point of having Jose? I mean, the Jose is pre- preached that it won't be pretty. Then how is... You know, the point is, is that when Spurs were getting the results against Arsenal and Man City when they went top of the league before Christmas, what what was the actual key point to those wins? Was that down to Man City being in a bad run of form and Arsenal, you know, being a team in transition? You know, they're they're getting rid of Ozil, they're getting rid of some of the dead weight that you know had you know that really springs from the back end of the sort of the Wenger years. Was it their issues? In other words, the fact that you know Man City you know didn't create that much. And yet, since then, they've gone on this 13-game winning streak. You know, even Arsenal you know, won four or five games in the Premier League in a row. And was it down to their temporary form issues, rather than a Jose masterpiece? Because they seem to you know, have gone on and got better, and we're the team that has declined, that the results have gone wrong. You know, The result against Fulham, where they were 1-0 up, but really outplayed at home. You know, they scored the first goal. Yeah, they could have got a second, but for a large period of time, they were under the cosh. Same thing happened at Palace. 1-0 up. Could have had a second goal. Keepers made a good save. But then spent oh, 40, 50 minutes absolutely under the pump and conceded. And yet the next week, Liverpool turn up there. Same Palace team. Smashed them 7-0. I just, in many ways see Jose as a a tired mind you know it's he's all you know when I've done because in many ways I absolutely you know Jose came at the perfect time you know that was when I was just going into sixth form and there was a suaveness there was you know the confidence there was, I'd almost describe it as sort of Kennedy-esque about him even though I'm a Spurs fan you know I appreciated what Jose brought to the Premier League. And yet now, and all throughout his career, he's taken on these challenges in a way that Pep doesn't really. And I've always criticised Pep and said that, you know, it's quite easy to have all of these highfalutin ideas if you always have a world-class squad, you know, already successful team. But you at least know that with Pep there is something meaningful behind it. He really wants to play brilliant football. That is the end point. Yes, if he wins trophies, that's fantastic. But it's far more about how brilliant the football is. How many more midfielders he can get. And his dream idea would be 11 midfielders. And yet with Jose, you don't really get that. In, In some way, shape or form, you're thinking, well, why has he never really survived a tailspin when things have gone wrong? You know, why has his... Endings at these clubs, other than really Inter, why have they always been quite toxic? Because I think if you take away the winning, what is left? The point is that the first Chelsea team played 
fantastic football. They scored lots of goals, but they were also defensively brilliant. Yeah, you know, there was bits of you know Real when they got to a hundred points when they you know knocked off a really good Barcelona team. Although they were slightly in decline, you know they didn't have Pep. You know you had Tito Villanova. It was really only until Luis Enrique showed up that then won his own treble with you know Suarez, Messi, and Neymar. Yeah, there's always a sense with Jose that there's a little bit of smoke and mirrors. When he goes to Inter Milan, you'd had Calciopoli, you'd had you know, Juventus had been relegated and stripped, and it took them a few years before they came back. You know, Milan were on the decline. You know, when he turns back to comes back to England after you know with Chelsea, there's an element that some of the teams around him weren't. You know, Spurs weren't quite there. Leicester weren't quite there. You know, Man United were re, you know were dealing with the you know fallout from you know Ferguson going. You know, Manchester City were waiting for Pep to turn up. You know, Arsenal were you know dealing with the back end of the you know, the psychodrama that was the end of Wenger. They were having their own civil war. There was lots of teams at that time that were struggling. So there's always a sense that at the at the deepest element to it is that there's winning, but there's also a narrative. There's always a sense that it's the right time for a Jose to turn up. That there's that opportunity available, but I just don't see that now. I don't see him being the, you know, his subs don't seem to work. A lot of his tactics just seem, you know, some, someone used the word ossified. That literally, it almost as if, you know, while it used to be a tool in his armoury, you know, best example being for Inter, away at Barcelona in the Champions League. But that, that was because they were down to, yeah, that was a brilliant Barcelona team. But that was also a team that was, you know, you were down to ten men. There was that was really the only realistic way that you could win. There was a spirit behind it, and I don't see as much of the spirit that was there for Inter and the first Chelsea team. I don't see that spirit. I see a lot of. It just seems to be a bit going through the motions. It you know it seems to me that those results against Arsenal and Chelsea, where or Arsenal and Man City. They weren't a beachhead to a better tomorrow. That wasn't just oh that that's how we'll get results now, but things can get better, you know, as we get more, you know, aware you know, of his tactics. It does seem to that was the end point. You know, at the moment his mind is tired. It only sees problems. It doesn't see solutions. And that's where you get deficiency ball from. It's ah, I don't have the players I once had, therefore I will overcompensate to then try and cover those problems. Not trying to coach my way out of it. I don't think, you know, the people that have got better at Spurs have had their own reasons for getting better. So you're talking about Aria, who wanted to move the only major offer I think he got was from Spartak Moscow, and he didn't want to move to Russia. You had Undombele, who wanted to leave, and he realised, you know, and the thing is, Aria still has his mistakes, He's still error prone, and a lot of it is, you know, whether it's mentality, whether it's, you know, he's naturally gifted. You know, there's nothing that Serge Aria can't do as a right back. You know, he can cross the ball brilliantly well. He has a good shot on him. He has pace. He can tackle. But you have runs where maybe four or five games where he shows it, and then there'll be a mistake or a bad game. You know, like when he got taken off at half time and left the stadium. You know, just a little bit of unprofessionalism. 
And then with on Dumbelli, he wasn't going to be sold because no one was going to pay sixty million for him because he'd had a you know a mixed half a season at Spurs in his first year and because of the pandemic finances. No, and so as a result, he realised that it was a case of get better here or you know your career could easily you know fizzle out. And he is again a wonderfully gifted player. I'm glad that he's worked on his fitness, but. How much of that was because of this, the sort of Mourinho miaz- winning miasmas that people seem to keep banging on about? You know, the, I think the classic example is really when Ali was blamed and shamed at Stoke. And yet you think, well, okay, that was a mistake that in causality, a couple of, you know, a couple of progressions down the line, Stoke got a goal and it was back to 2 1. And yet, Dyer's given away three penalties for Spurs since you know we come out of lockdown, one for England. That's four penalties and not a huge amount of games. Arias made plenty of mistakes. And yet, they're not as punished as swiftly or as brutally as Ali, who was then taken off. And the thing is, he'd played well. And that's exactly what, you know, it was supposed to be the carrot and the stick. He'd got this start. He'd linked up well with Kane. Goalkeepers made a couple of saves. Spurs were playing well. And yet, yeah, he was only given handfuls of games in, you know, the Europa League. He wasn't given any kind of responsibility. A couple of times he was pulled off at half time. Even in the league, he was given forty five minutes in the first game of the season. Spurs were nil nil, lost one nil in the second half when he wasn't playing. No one really played well in that game. He'd had a really good preseason. When did he next play in the league? Oh, twenty minutes at United when we were already four five one up. And you're thinking, well, he's had 73 minutes. What could he have possibly done so badly in 73 minutes that he's had months where he's not even making the squad? And that's the thing, is, is that with this sort of anger, it becomes a who shouts loud, he who shouts loudest and most often. You know, it's bullying language, it's snide, it's personal attacks, it's the idea of shattering norms. It, you know, it's... You know, a section of Spurs fans saying, well, if you're not you know, supporting Jose 100%, it's almost as if you're not a proper Spurs fan. You know, I think some of these Joseists, you know, who have you know, websites and podcasts, to me they're almost like demagogues. And that's what they always say about demagogues, is that they secretly despise their audience. You know, because there's always a sort of disdain for the readers and the listeners. You know, a refusal to respect difference and opinion. And I just don't feel that you need that level of confrontationalism. You know, I wanted Jose to be a fantastic success at Spurs. I thought there was some potential. But at the moment, looking at the way how things are going, it's becoming a chore watching Tottenham. It's not particularly enjoyable. You're just... You know, we don't seem to be able to deal with, you know, going 1-0 down. And even when we go 1-0 up, yeah, I think the Sheffield United game its really stuck in my mind. That we started the game really well, got a goal, and then dropped off and let Sheffield United back in. And I'm just thinking, how can you have a system that allows teams to get back in? That seems to, you know, and this is when Sheffield United were absolutely bottom of the Premier League in no kind of form, you know, had a record low amount of points, and yet at 1 0, you're dropping off them, you're giving them the, the emphasis, you're allowing them to play themselves into form, and then they equalise. 
and immediately go up the other end and get a second goal. And it's like, well, why didn't you get the second goal first? Why didn't you bury this game? Why didn't you put it 2-0, 3-0, 4-0? And then the last half an hour isn't really being un- being put under pressure by, you know, Sheffield United and having to wait till the sort of last few minutes and then getting a breakaway for 3-1 when you could have had this game buried by half-time. With Jose, there's so much negativity. There's, it's You almost have this fear that you're either going to have to subsume the club into his ego and that everything will have to be right for Jose. And to me, no one can be bigger than Spurs. Thank you for listening.